0: morning again. So here we are into the book of Judges, into chapter 4 now. Hopefully it's been encouraging. It's um, I think it's a wonderful book, as grim as it can seem sometimes. Um, So we are into chapter 4 of Judges. So I'm going to read the entire chapter, verses 1 to 24, and you can read along. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment." She sent and summoned Barak and the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, "'I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman.' Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Haber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out his chariots, 900 of iron chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Heresheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harosheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Haber the Kenite for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Haber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, the wife of Haver, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. Understatement. Sorry, I have to say that. (laughs) And behold... As Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin king of Canaan. Okay. I love this book. Uh, Now, chapter four is history. It tells you the story of what happened. Chapter five, Deborah has a song. And in that song, she retells the story of chapter four, but she does it in poetry. And so you have a prose chapter four and a poetry chapter five conveying the same story, but in different ways. And so we're not reading it, but I will refer to the poem often today, their their song, because poetry is important. Poetry does things that prose cannot do. And poetry, there's a guy named T.S. Eliot, and T.S. Eliot uh, said something wonderful about poetry, he was a poet, and he says, poetry is a raid on the inarticulate. And what he meant by that was poetry tries to take these ideas and these thoughts and these things that are very difficult to grasp. I can't explain it. So instead he says what poetry does is it performs a raid, a smash and grab. It takes this thing that we can't quite put our finger on, it's hard to articulate, and it jumps in, grabs what it can and jumps out and then tries to present to you that little bit. It raids the inarticulate. And so you have in poetry and in the Bible's poetry and in Deborah's song, you have them using what poets often do, which is using uh, aesthetic language. They use hyperbole, they use imagery, they use terms you would never think to use in normal language, and you can't take quite as literally as you would. So for instance, uh, Deborah will say things like, um, the mountains quaked before the Lord when he came to fight Sisera. Did they really quake? Or is this imagery to say that God's presence, his holiness, which of course is the word heaviness. Holiness is kadosh, heaviness. This God coming, and he quakes because of everything trembles before God. She says that she arose as a mother in, in Israel. No, she didn't. She wasn't a mother, literally, but she rose as a mother, caring for them. She speaks about how the stars fought against Sisera. She even calls the sun a he, personifying the, the creation. But did the stars really fight against Sisera? Well, No. But what, what Deborah is doing, as T.S. Eliot says, is she is trying to explain something in, inconceivable. How could Israel defeat the Canaanite army that is so well prepared and so well equipped with 900 chariots? It's preposterous. And so she is grasping at language to explain and to show how it was possible. And it's important because she tells you things that the that story doesn't. Like she'll tell you that it rained. And so these chariots got stuck in the mud, which explains why Cicero had to get off his chariot and run away from the battle scene, even though the story in chapter 4 doesn't tell us that, but the poem does. And they speak to one another. And when they do, when you look at what chapter 4 is saying, the common thread amongst pastors, especially today, and I'm not knocking them, is to preach this and people read it and assume it's a gender-specific story. Because we are so consumed with the idea of gender equality and gender rights and feminism and things, we want to read it and say, aha. Deborah and Jael are driving a tent peg in for all women, you know? And I understand that desire. (laughs) You laugh, but there's a lot of scholars who think this. Now, that's okay. We can bring it there eventually, but what we need to do is try to understand the story as it was intended and meant then. Why is it that women are so prominent in this story? What is God saying? What was he saying then? And how do we first, by knowing what it said to them, apply to what it says today? And we look at this carefully, and we try to to look under the surface of these these modern questions we have, we find that the story is all about idolatry. All kinds of idols being crashed and broken here. And so that's what we're going to do. And we will talk about the gender things, because it is important. And you'll see, the author wants us to see it as important. But three things we're going to see. We're going to see that we require idols, we crave them, we desire them. That God removes those idols and then God replaces those idols. And that's all to be found here. So, first we require idols. There's this wonderful book called Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. And in this book, uh, Charles Dickens, it's a guy, Pip. A man named Pip is telling the story of his life. And he's, Pip was a guy who was born as an orphan. He's under the care of, his, um, of Joe, the, the blacksmith. And he's being groomed to be a blacksmith. But then there's a mysterious benefactor who shows up, who decides he wants Pip to become a gentleman. So someone, we don't know why until near the end, I won't spoil it, um, comes along and and starts to give this young, poor kid all sorts of benefits. So he becomes a gentleman, and he's wealthy, and has a position, and so on. But when he's a little boy, he meets a girl. He goes to play as a playdate at a wealthy woman's house, a woman named Miss Miss Havisham. And Miss Havisham is a woman who, when she was younger, was jilted. At the altar, she was abandoned. And as a result, she hates men, grew up despising men. And then she takes on a young girl named Estella as her ward. And she raises this beautiful little girl to grow up to be a terror to men. So she grows up to be a tease, to string them on, to break their hearts, because she wants to stick it to men, right, Miss Havisham. So Pip meets Estella, and he falls in love with her immediately. And the entire story is him stuck in always loving her, but never really being able to have her, because she just breaks his heart all the time. And here is something he says, the unqualified truth is that when I loved Estella with the love of a man, I loved her simply because I found her irresistible. Once for all, I knew to my sorrow often and often, if not always, that I loved her against reason against promise, against peace, against hope, against happiness, against all discouragement that could be. Once for all, I loved her nonetheless because I knew it, and it had no more influence in restraining me than if I had devoutly believed her to be human perfection. So Pip knows she's gonna destroy him. He knows she is no good for him. He knows it's all gonna to come to naught, but he can't resist, so he keeps going back He's allowing himself to just have his heart broken time and time again. And this is the image we have of Israel with sin and idols. Israel, deep down, they know, and you and I know, that they can't satisfy us. We know they're going to leave us empty, but we can't seem to resist chasing them. It doesn't matter. We all have those idols we follow, and we can't resist chasing them. And we see this so clearly on display in this story, specifically in what Israel is doing. So let me show, who are they fighting here? In this, part, this chapter, they're fighting the Canaanites. Now, this is the first time so far in the book of Judges, when they've talked about the Judges and not chapter 1, where they're actually fighting the right people. Because the first judge, Othniel, is fighting Mesopotamian, Cushan-Rishathaim, if you remember, who remembers that name. Um, and they're writing the in the northeast of Israel, So for you up here. Israel's here, up here. Then you have Ehud, who's fighting the Moabites, who is east of the Jordan, not in Canaan. And then you have Shamgar, who delivers them from the Philistines, which means coastal people, sea people, and they're along the coast. So it's not until chapter 4, and Deborah and Barak in jail, that you have the Jews actually fighting the right people. And if you remember what they were told to do, God says very simply, when you fight the Canaanites, there's only two things you need to remember to do. Covet their land and hate their religion. Covet the land that I'm giving to you, and trust me to give it to you. You must relentlessly pursue the promise. That's your job, and I will give you what I've said. But you must hate their religion and their culture. Because otherwise, as we've talked about, it's going to consume you. But what is it we find all through and right here very clearly on display? Israel loves their religion, but hates the land. See, they're willing to part with the land. They're willing to lose and to co- cohabitate and, and share a culture. Right? They're willing to do this. They're willing to embrace the idols time and again. But they're not willing to take the land. So they have completely inverted what God has told them to do. And Israel does this because they can't seem to stop disappro- this, uh, rebelling against God. They can't seem to resist Estella, the idols, and God's people all through have struggled with this. Every one of us continues to. There's always an idol out there that looks so appealing. In the foundations course this week with the folks, one of the things we talked about was, how do you, why is, what's that sin? And your community groups will talk about this too. What's that sin in your life that is so natural to you that it happens without you even thinking? And how did it get there? What is it? You know, I've heard the story that if you open up a piano and you speak into it, The only string that will vibrate is the one that matches the key of your voice. If that's the case, what is it that the enemy speaks into your heart and what vibrates? He looks at you and says, ah, that's the one. That's the string I'm gonna pluck on Carl time and again. What is that one? And why is it so beautiful to you compared to God? Why is it that we're willing to go back even though we know it's a disaster? And this is the question they're being asked of here very clearly. now. If I'm a skeptic, and I often think this way, I have a problem because I'm saying, listen, Carl, it's very good, but if God actually likes Israel, why has he left this temptation in the first place? Because if I'm a parent and I don't want my children to fall down a well, I cover the well. I don't let it stay there and persist and tempt my children. I don't put candy around the well and wait for them to chase it. So what kind of a God is this? And God himself answers this question in the book of Judges, in the previous chapter, and he says there's two reasons he has allowed these people and these idols to remain. In chapter 3, verses 2 and 4, here's what he says. It was only in order that the generations of people, the people of Israel, might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. And the second reason, and we'll talk about this, is this. They were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And so, God says, I'm leaving this here because I'm going to teach them something. First, they live in a brutal world, and if they don't know how to fight, it's going to be a struggle. So, practically speaking, he says, I'm going to let them, because they need to know how to fight, otherwise they won't survive. This world is riddled with sin. So he allows them to learn this lesson. The second thing, he says, is, I'm doing this to test them. I'm going to test their faith, and this is where the great expectations example comes in beautifully. God is saying this, I keep removing the circumstances away from Israel. I keep dragging them out of oppression. If you're in debt, oh Christian, I will give you money. If you don't have a job, I'll give you a job. If you're having trouble at home, I will make that better. But those circumstances aren't the problem because you keep going back to your sin like a dog returns to his vomit. So the circumstances is not what God needs to change any longer. What he needs to do is he needs to let Israel feel. He he needs to let Israel drink full the idols. Drink full, Estella, because it's not enough if I know they're not good for you. I need you to realize that they're hurting you. You need to, Shakespeare says, you have to heave the gorge. You have to eat it so full that you throw up from it and say, this is not right for me. Because you're not, just removing the circumstances isn't helping you. You still think these idols are better for you than I am. That's what God is saying. And so he allows it to stay because he knows, have you noticed in the book of Judges? It's only when they get to the bottom that they actually are willing to fight for God. So God says, I'm going to allow it, because if I keep just taking the circumstances away, I'm not helping them. They need to heave the gorge. They need, to resist. they need to reject these idols. I can't just do it for them, because it's not a surrogate faith. They have to believe. So, he does that. So the first thing, first point is clear. We love the idols. We keep chasing Estella over and over. And God says, like he says in Romans, you know, it's it's like, to me, it's always been a terror. When I first became a Christian, I remember reading Romans and being terrified when he says um, that he's going to hand people over to their desires. And I thought, oh my goodness, I don't want to be handed over to my desires because I know what my desires are. Not good. And the great terror of Carl has always been that I will get everything I want. I don't want that. I want everything he knows I need. That's what I want. And this is what Israel needs to figure out. They need to get to a place of knowing idols will, will hurt them, rather than just crying about how the consequences have hurt them. So that's the first thing. Second thing now, God removes those idols. So when he comes in the book of Judges, he, in, in chapter 4, he uses three deliverers, doesn't he? It's, it's, it's a coalition. Normally, there's a very simple formula. God raises up a judge, and God is with the judge, and that judge rescues Israel. That's usually the way it goes. But here, God doesn't show up. God doesn't raise up a judge anywhere. It doesn't say that. It says Deborah is judging, and then Je- Deborah acts as a mouthpiece for God and calls Je- uh, Barak up and raises him up and follows him and was with him in battle. So Deborah acts as a sort of surrogate for God here, and she's judging. But there's three different people, Barak, uh, Deborah, Barak, and Jael. And all of them have very, di- they're very different characters. And you look at how he's removing idols through different people. He has a willing person, a reluctant person, and an oblivious or unaware person. I'll explain as we go. So the first one is a willing person, Deborah. Now, Deborah is described as a shafat, which which means she is a judge as an administrator. She is not a mashiach, a deliverer. She doesn't go to war. She doesn't fight in the war. Barak fights. She accompanies him, but she doesn't fight. Barak is described in the other way. But she is a judge, so that means she's a governor. She's leading, she's, she's literally judging. People are coming as she sits under the, the oak tree and she's answering questions and she's, she's administering justice in Israel. And it's amazing how scholars play with this. But here's one thing we do know. The author does want you. God wants you to know she's a woman, just in case you don't, you miss it. And you know how we know he wants you to? Because in that very first sentence, in chapter 4, verse 4, there is seven feminine words used. So it doesn't say, in the English, for instance, it'll say she's a prophetess and the wife of Lapidoth, but it's not, the Hebrew literally says, Deborah, a prophet, a woman, a woman of Lapidoth, she, she judges in Israel, she sits under the tree, and it goes on, seven references to her gender, which is weird, because that's not the way you normally speak, but it seems that we were meant to, to know this is a woman who's leading at this point. Now, enter the feminists, right? And who will say, ah, you see, this is, the Bible has been feminist all along. You know? there's no It's too patriarchal, and even the women are rebelling. Let's take it easy. Slow down. Slow down. Let's go back to what's happening. Why is it that she is being referenced? It's clear she's a woman. We can't deny it, obviously. But Some scholars say, "Well, she's second best, you know. It's because there's no viable men in leadership, so a woman is there. So it's she's really not the best option. She's just there because no guys would stand up, and that is the knock on Israel." Now, I understand that point, but let me be clear: she's not second best. She's the only one in the story who's depicted as having faith that's genuine and solid throughout. Um, So I don't think she's second best. Okay? She's, a, she's clearly capable, bold, courageous. We know that. So let's not knock Deborah, no matter what we do. I think that's fair. But I do, we do have to embrace this truth that in the ancient world, men would have read this and thought, what's going on here? Why? You know, and maybe it's a small example today where some of us might come home, and I know people don't love gender stereotypes today, but we all have roles in our family. And is it possible as a man, you know, the manly macho types, I'm not one of them. Uh, I'm just not... Good with my hands, for instance. But what if you're a really handy guy and you come home and you find your wife fixing the gutters? You think, Oh, you shouldn't have to do that. I should have been done. I, I should be doing that. And you feel a burden on you that this the roles, like you shouldn't have to do that. It's a burden that shouldn't be placed on you. Well, this is clearly what we know the ancients would have thought. At very least, they would have felt, she shouldn't have to be doing this. Where are we? We should be doing this. And that's not a knock on women, it's just at the time. And Biblically, it speaks quite uh, to a larger topic. But it gets even more complicated because we know that this is how men thought because in a few chapters, we're going to talk about Abimelech, the son of Gideon. He is uh, a de facto king in Israel. We'll get to talk about him. And he gets killed by a woman dropping a millstone on his head. And when he does, just before he's dying, he says to his his armor bearer, run run me through, kill me. He says, because I don't want it to be said that a woman killed me. So you just kill me, because I, I don't want that kind of a shame. And so, like it or not, this was an honor and shame culture. And so when Deborah is leading, capable though she is, it is a knock on the men. Like it or not, that's the way it was intended to see at the time. So, that, however, is not something that we should be knocking poor Deborah for. She's awesome. She's a power, she's a good woman. There's no knock on her here. He is willing to use a capable woman to free Israel from idols, first and foremost. So he takes a willing agent. But he doesn't only use willing agents. Then you have Barak. And again, your community groups, you can have all these debates. But Barak is told very simply, go, take 10,000 men, go up to this mountain and wait. And then God will draw the army of Sisera, well, for you it'll be this way, from the Kishon River, and he'll come to meet you. And when he does, you come down and engage with him because surely the Lord has given him into your hand. Barak doesn't say, Roger, will go and do it, the way Othniel does. He doesn't even take into his own hands the way, Ehud, Ehud doesn't need to be told to fight. i got a plan. i got this knife, I'm going to stick it in. See, Barak, however, says, no, I'm only going to go if you come with me. And here we have this great mystery. Is he being faithful? Is he being like Moses, who says, I won't go into the promised land unless you come with me. Well, probably not, because he doesn't say, I won't go unless God comes. He says, I won't go unless Deborah comes. It's a different thing. Aside from that, Deborah's response to him seems to be a bit rebuking. She says, fine, but understand the road that you're on now, you're not going to get the glory for this. So does Barak lack faith? Is he reluctant? And before we hammer him too bad, let's remember that how many of us have answered God's call immediately? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? Not many. And so Barak, we, he, he seems to be reluctant. He's not quite willing to do everything he's asked to. And yet, Hebrews 30, 11.34 says he is a man of faith. And when he says that he is a man of faith, the author of Hebrews, he says two beautiful things that we have to realize. One, that these judges conquered nations in the name of God. So let me be clear. Barak may be reluctant but he does an incredibly brave thing. He does answer the call, though it takes some time. He does take an inferior, a poorly equipped army to fight an army that has 900 chariots, which were incredibly powerful at the time. So he shows great faith. In fact, if you know the geography, he has to travel 70 miles south to meet Deborah, to even hear that he's being called, 70 miles back up, gather an army of 10,000, climb up a mountain, if you know Mount Tabor, it looks like a cone in the middle of nowhere, and then to go down and meet this army, chase it all the way back to destroy everybody, and then run all the way back in the other direction to go find Sisera, who's already dead. So Barak may be a reluctant leader, but he's a man of faith. And yet, there is something you're meant to notice about his reluctance. Because he doesn't take what God offers freely, he spends the whole story trying to earn what God offered him freely. God said, I would give him into your hands, and Barak says, "Eh, you know... I'll cut, let's get Deborah to come. So the whole time, what is he doing? He's chasing the glory. He's trying to cut down the army, and he never gets there. And by the time he gets to Sisera, it's gone. And it's a lesson for you and I. When we refuse to take God at his word, be careful. Because what you're going to do is still chase everything he's given. He's offered you freely salvation. And if you don't take it, what are you going to do with your life? You're going to be trying to earn it through your career, through your sexual conquests through your performance, through your ego, through your laughter, whatever it is, your money, doesn't matter what it is. And so Barak is for us at least that warning. Yes, he's a man of faith. He's tragically human. <laughs> and he refuses to follow God at the first, and he continues to chase it throughout. So that's something we need to know. He's a reluctant judge, but a judge nonetheless. And lastly, we have jail, this incredible character. More mysterious, I think, than we give her credit for. We don't know as much about jail as we think we do. Jail, here's what we do know. She's not a Jew. We know that she is married to a man and they are in part of a nomadic people. They're nomads, the Canaanites, so they're living in a tent village at this point. We know that her family has a, has, a contra, has a treaty with the Canaanites, with Jabin, it says they're at peace with them. So that much we know. She has no business being involved in this war. She's neither a Jew nor a Canaanite. She's got a treaty with the Canaanites, so if anything, she should be helping Sisera, not driving a nail in his head. So we know that much, at least. So what is her motive for being involved? People say she's a woman of faith. Stop it. Where do you learn that? You don't hear it in Hebrews, she's not listed. You don't hear here that she has any faith. She hasn't mentioned God or Yahweh in any way. She's not a Jew by all accounts. She may have had faith, but you don't know that. Neither do I. So her motives are mysterious. We just don't know exactly what she's doing and why. And we can have great debates and you may have a conviction, say, well, Carl, I disagree, she's a woman of faith. Okay, you could think that, but the text doesn't really tell us one way or the other. So let's be ruthless with the text. And when we look at it, you see something even more incredible because when you look at the text as it comes, you don't make jail the hero, but God the hero. That is where you should be. Let's not make jail a hero. Not make Deborah even the hero. God is the hero. But let's look at jail first. Here's what we know. By doing what she does, she puts her family and her tribe in great peril. Because by breaking a treaty, Cicero might be dead, but we're told at the end that Jabin is still king at the end. You have scor- you've scorched the snake, but not killed it. So Israel has to spend time pressing Jabin. So by doing what she does, she's potentially risk opening up her family and her tribe to retribution. So it's a risky move. We also know here's another great question. Does she seduce Sisera? When Sisera comes to the tent, he sees a village of people, a tent village of people he knows that he's in a treaty with. So he thinks he's arrived safely into somewhere he can find refuge. And jail, maybe or maybe not, is a mystery. The language she uses is surprisingly exactly like the adulteress in Proverbs five and seven. Turn aside into my tent. In fact, Just for the record, what it says in the Hebrew doesn't say, "'Turn into my tent,' it says, "'Turn into me.'" And then it says, "'And Sisera turned it into her.'" Now, I'm not suggesting there was a grand, intimate moment. What I am saying is the language makes it seem interesting, that she's saying, "'Come into my tent,' promising him safety, knowing very well she has no intention of giving him safety. It's interesting that he asks for water, and he gets milk, which is what moms do to children. It's true to say she then covers him. And the last thing he says is, if anybody comes, tell them I'm not here. And the very next words is, but jail took a hammer <laughs> and a nail. So, what's her motives? What's her motives for this? And I'll talk about a bit what the possibilities of motives, but we don't know. All we know is this she takes great risk. She's brave. She is very handy with a hammer and a peg, <laughs> as a tent people would be. Um, we don't know. She never says, for women everywhere! <laughs> that's not said. And listen, I'm not disparaging that. I'm simply saying, let's not read the 21st century into the, into the, into whatever, this, the 13th century B.C. So we don't know her motives, but we do know she is brutal. She's, she is bold. She has nerves of steel. This is a general of the biggest army in the region. And it's like, no problem, I got him. That's, that's incredible. Now, here's what we also know. She's broken not just a treaty, but she's broken, at very least, the rules of hospitality. <laughs> okay? <laughs> it's a, it's a, I know it sounds pity, but it's not petty. Because in the ancient world, you, you treat people well, and she breaks this so clearly. And the job of a host was always to care for the person, even if they're a stranger. I mean, even in Macbeth, if you know the story of Macbeth, in Shakespeare. Shakespeare, Macbeth is a Scottish nobleman and he wants to become king. Uh, and he figures the best way to do it is to kill the existing king. So he invites Duncan over to his house, the king, and he struggles because he has guilt. Jail has no guilt, at least we don't see any. No remorse. Macbeth, this cold blooded, he's bloody, bold, and resolute, Shakespeare says. But he's, even he struggles with guilt. See, Macbeth says when he's debating to his wife, should I kill him? He says, very clearly, where am I here? He's here, the king, in double trust. First, I am his kinsman and his subject, strong both against the deed, then as his host, who should against his murderer, shut the door, not bear the knife myself. Even Shakespeare knows, even Macbeth knows this. And then Macbeth, after he kills Duncan while he's sleeping, much like Cicero, Macbeth says, Macbeth hath murdered sleep, therefore Macbeth shall sleep no more. And he's wrapped with guilt the rest of the book. Him and his wife. Jail, think of her what she will, there's no mention of her guilt. She doesn't feel guilty. This is Jason Bourne. This is like James Bond, this is a person no conscience, it seems like. Or at least we don't know of it. So this wonderful, mysterious character is here in this book. And I'm not going to judge her either way, but I will say this, she is unaware of what she's doing, it seems. She doesn't know she's an active, like Deborah and Barak, know they're being used of God to free Israel. Jael seems to be an opportunist. Here he is, perfect. And there's even hints in the song that Deborah will sing that Sisera was known to be a man who liked to um, take advantage of women. That when his mother realizes he hasn't returned from war, she says, maybe he's off gathering a womb or two. The suggestion is he'd like to take women. So some people said, is it that Jael knows that this is the kind of man he is? And not just that, has she even suffered at his hands? And as a result, she is taking matters in her own hand. Listen, I don't know. The text doesn't tell us that. All we know is she seems to be unaware, and here we have this wonderful God who is using the willing, the reluctant, and even those who have no interest in his battles to, to, to save us. And that is, I think, the most important part we're to take from that part. But I, in your groups, please, you'll see the questions I've made. Debate these things. It's a wonderful story to think about what's going on, what are the motives, what does God think of jail, is he okay with this? I don't, I don't know. Anyway, God is so committed, so he removes our idols, he's more committed to removing your idols than you are to. You, you and I are more committed to taking on idols, than, and he is more committed to removing them. And that's the thing we see with these three judges. The last thing is God replacing them. And here, for copyright reasons, we have to show this picture only for a short time. <laughs> Otherwise, YouTube will get us. But. I've used this with you before, the opening scene of Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Indiana is there, you're free to take that off if you want, Just I don't know how, when YouTube will get us. Um, <laughs> he sits there, and there's this idol he wants. But he knows that the moment he takes the idol off the throne, it's going to trigger a trap. So he knows the only thing he can do to stay alive is to replace the idol with the bag of sand. right? Otherwise, it'll trip, and of course it does anyway, and the ball chases him. We all know the story. Now, that image is an ideal image for what the Bible says about our idolatry, that when you and I have idols, if we don't replace them with God and put Christ on the throne that that idol was on, you will put something else on it. And so somebody who is prone, a chronic liar, you know, people out there who just, they're always lying. And it comes second nature to just say things like, oh yeah, this is me, I did this. And they're saying it all, it's, a, it's part of you, right? You just can't stop lying. And it's usually because you're so insecure that you want their good approval. You feel like you're not going to measure up, so you always need a better story. You say, I killed 600 people with an ox goat, then you're Samson. I killed 1,000 with a jawbone. You're always trying to one-up somebody. Now, that person has this idol. And to get better... They can't simply stop, telling the tr- stop lying and start telling the truth. You see, that would be only the symptom. Because what will happen is they haven't dealt with that root of wanting your good opinion more than anything. Then they'll stop lying, they'll be truth-tellers. But then they'll start using flattery. Then they'll start using their own accomplishments and their money, maybe uh, their, their titles, whatever it is. And you'll find all along they're actually still lying because the flattery is only meant to draw from you praise. And so the idol remains. They pulled lying off the throne, but because they haven't put Christ there, it's just been replaced by flattery or their job or something else. I've heard of a guy, I know of a guy, who um, left the church, sorry, joined the church as a non-Christian. As a non-Christian, he was a great, a grand womanizer. Had, and admitted, you know what, I feel like nothing. And every time I have another one-night stand, I feel better. I feel like I'm more of a man. He comes, becomes a Christian. He gives up that, style, that lifestyle. But what he finds over time is he hasn't really got rid of it. Now he's just trying to dominate his life group. He's dominating his church. He's dominating his wife because he still needs to feel like he is the man because he doesn't feel like it really. So he hasn't, redu- he hasn't got rid of the idol. He's just replaced it with another. And so what you and I are being called to do here, what God is saying is you must put God in the place that the idol occupies. In your life. And Deborah, and this is how we do it. See, the story shows us how we do that. And you know it by the mention of these three judges, call them what we will. Deborah is never again referenced in the Bible. Did you know that? Her name never shows up again, only here. Jail is referenced by Deborah in the song. And jail is, Deborah says, is just like Shamgar. You know what she's doing? By saying that, Deborah is saying a Jew like Shamgar and a non-Jew like Jael are on parallel. And so Jael is elevated by her work, according to Deborah, um, and saying she's, you know, she's done the work of, of saving Israel. Like it or not, unaware or not, she has delivered Israel. So, she is, so Jael is mentioned. We know Barak is mentioned again in, in Hebrews, as this, even though he's reluctant, and he's mentioned again as a man of faith. Deborah's left out of Hebrews 11. Why is it? that the only faithful person with no blemish on her in this story is not mentioned again. And I I mean, I'm speculating, but I'm trying to gospel speculate here. I think it's because of this. God wants us to see that the idol that you are meant, when you replace that idol, the God you put on the throne of your heart, is the God who uses people who don't deserve to be used. Deborah deserves full credit for obeying God. But God is saying time and again, you know what? I am the God who will use the imperfect. I am the God who will use all of you for my glory. I will take care of the how. And that God, that gracious God, you see, replace your Estella. See, the idols will always demand everything and leave you with nothing. The job, if that's your idol, if your job is your idol, you'll give everything to it. And at the end, if you've really succeeded, you're going to be at the top of the mountain, and you're going to realize I'm still empty. But if you fail and you get downsized, you're gonna think, what did I do? I've got nothing now, I've gave it everything and I have nothing. The only God, the only idol that will not let you down, will not let you become too puffed up, will satisfy you when you're in him, but also won't destroy you when you fail him, is God. Because as a Christian, you, you're just, you're, if you're faithful and you're, you've done everything beautifully, you're a man and woman after David or God's own heart, then. You find satisfaction and peace in Christ. If you fail time and again and you're reluctant and you struggle like all these judges, what do you find? He loves you and saves you. The only idol you can take off, replace that idol of your heart with that won't let you down is Christ. And if you don't do that, you're going to have a very difficult life. You're just going to yoke yourself to another Estella time and time again. Idols will demand everything but leave you crying out for emptiness like they do to Israel, time and again, and they will for another 16 more chapters, guys. It's going to go on. <laughs> but the God of hope is there. If we make jail the hero, Deborah the hero, then you're going to come away from this sermon thinking, I have to be like Deborah. But you know what you're going to find? You're not like Deborah. You're a coward most of the time, like I am. You're going to find you're not capable, you're not brave, you're not going to drive a pent peg through any enemy. And so what will happen if I make you think that that's who the person you have to be is you're just going to be burdened, and I'm going to be the Pharisee who heaps more laws on you. Be a good person. Instead, the text is clear. Look to God. He is the hero, the one who saves and uses the reluctant and the failure. That's who we heap on ourselves. That's what this is for. Christians and skeptics alike. Non-gods will only use and discard you. God wants to serve and fill you. Stop chasing ways to earn your peace through other means. Christ alone, only hope. Let's pray.